Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Vanity Fair film critic Richard Lawson, filling in for Katie Rich, and I'm joined by digital director Mike Hogan. Hey, Richard. And senior writer Joanna Robinson. Hi, Richard. Katie's off. I, I, I guess she's allowed to go on vacation with her family? Is that that's a thing? Mm, I mean, we're, we're letting it slide this one time. All right. Fair enough. Really? Yeah. By the way, if I sound different today, it's because I went to the gym this morning, and oh. I really never do that. Congrats. And I just wanted to brag right on a podcast. Are you elliptical? What are we talking about? This is, this is like a short run. It oh, okay. That okay. Of a run. <laughs> hey, that's more than, than I did. But it was something. Yeah. Well, I guess it's okay that Katie's out this week because it's kind of a quiet time right now. We're, we're post-Oscars. We're pre film festivals, although we will be talking about Cannes later this episode. But briefly, there was this news this week that uh, John Bailey, who's the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, had been under investigation for a sexual harassment claim, but the Academy just cleared him. But I feel like we have to talk about that because like, all eyes are on that stuff now. And, and, and to have it be the president of the Academy, that feels like a big deal, right? Yeah, it's the first test of their new rules. They had to come up with rules in, in the midst of you know everything that's been going on in the Me Too uh, moment here. And then the very first test is the new president. Great. Just what you wanted to deal with. But, you know, Rebecca Keegan broke the story over the weekend that he had written a letter really just saying, like, I didn't do this. And this is a this is a very tricky thing, obviously, for um, for people who are accused. And we've seen a lot of people sort of fumble that particular ball. To say, I really believe that everyone who, you know, says their stories should be heard. But like in this case, right. it's it's not true. But I mean, he seemed to not make it any worse, at least. And now the Academy has formally, it seems, come and said, like, we've looked into it. And based on the new guidelines, like this isn't an issue. I mean, who the heck knows, right? That's yeah. they're, they're obviously under a lot of pressure there to say that. But on the other hand, they would be incredibly foolish in this moment to do anything other than handle it in the most forthright way. And the guy's new, so it's not like they have that much invested. They could just, you know, it, it would be, I guess, a sign um, yeah. of independence if they just were like, sorry, let's try again. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, that, it, it, but certainly not how they wanted to have their first test of their new guidelines. I like this part of their statement. Nicole Sperling wrote it up for our site. The statement from the Academy reads, um, or the Membership and Administration Committee reads, the Academy took the claim very seriously and was cognizant of the rights of both the claimant and the accused, including consulting with outside counsel with expertise in matters related to harassment. I mean, it's very like dispassionate, but like that's what the sort of thing should be. But it, it feels, it does feel very balanced and dispassionate. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I remember when the when the accusations first broke, a couple things that I thought about was like John Bailey had this sort of. I want to say, I mean, maybe that's unfair, but like defensive reaction when he was first appointed, because, you know, there were there were women and people of color sort of in the race with him. And he was, you know, he's an older white man. And so I remember him being kind of defensive of like, I find it, you know, I find it offensive just because I'm an older white man that I wouldn't like advocate for diversity or, or whatever. He gave that statement about that. And then um, I remember some people noting that he did not go on stage during the ceremony this year. That's accurate, right? Yeah. So, and I don't know if he just absented himself from that to sort of keep the focus where it was on that night, or if these accusations were already in the water or what was going on. But um, I like this statement. I like the very sort of business-like way this was was handled, you know, rather than a really messy sort of, he said, she said, or he said, they said reaction. I don't know. I guess in the era of Trump, I'm just braced for everything to be this like insane scandal. And I'm like, oh, what a what a quiet scandal this was. <laughs> yeah. Let HR <laughs> handle it. Yeah. <laughs> I think the thing to pay, to pay attention to with this and going forward is like, okay, you know, the Academy did their their investigation. I don't know what the parameters of that investigation were, what the kind of, M, you know, the, the MO for it was, but like, and they found, you know, they said there's no no further action required. Okay, like let's you know take them at that at their word on that. But like going forward, if these investigations, not just in the academy but in other you know arenas, happen and this result keeps coming up, you know you kind of have to start wondering like you know who and who in these systems are you know who are they protecting and like who are they actually working for. So so I think it's like you know uh, this seems resolved for the moment, you know. But I think I think going forward we have to be. Uh, or we should pay attention to the results of these investigations, not just the kind of accusation, but, but you know, to see if there's a pattern, I don't know, of like many people being sort of cleared on these things um, and, and what that might tell us about how these investigations actually work. I don't know. Yeah. And in the old days, things like this were probably handled where they would quietly let somebody go like as soon as they could find an excuse and right. so that might be another thing to look for are we really in a new era or are we in an era where it's actually the same old stuff with some new language on top of it I, right you know, that's yeah I that's what no i'm getting idea. at yeah. and i don't want to suggest that you know for all i know he he is completely innocent and this was nothing and they found nothing and they're completely satisfied but you know i, I think it'll take some time to to really know the truth of this situation if we if we ever get the truth yeah and it's and if, if if more and more people keep turning up completely innocent, like you're like, okay, right. how how likely is that actually? Mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, speaking of that, that's a kind of that, that's a, a touchy topic, obviously, and difficult to talk about. But something that's not is that the French are kind of ridiculous, and so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, glad sorry. you said it. Yeah, this sorry, time. French listeners. Um, no, we love the French, uh, and we love Can. <laughs> uh, and and Can. Speaking of new rules, they've instituted some new policies uh, for this year's festival, which is about um, like I don't know, uh, five weeks away from from now. Uh, and the biggest one, I think, as it affects the industry, in as much as Can affects the American film industry at all, is that they're essentially banning Netflix. So they tried last year with Okja and the Meyerowitz stories. They had two Netflix films I- in competition. Uh, and quite famously, I believe I talked about it on this podcast, when the Netflix logo would appear before the the big press screenings at the Lumiere Theater in the Palais, it, it got booed. Uh, so Netflix was not necessarily the most welcome uh, guest at the festival last year. And now uh, Thierry Fermot, the uh, the head of the festival, uh, he has said that um, 
they are not going to allow any Netflix films in a competition because they do not get theatrical releases. And they had done it last year as sort of a pilot program to see if Netflix would maybe then say, okay, if, if we can be at Cannes, then we'll, um, we, yeah, we'll give these films like, m- you know, minor theatrical releases. And they didn't. So Netflix is now essentially banned from Cannes. So, I mean, I don't know. Do, do we think that that, what does, what does that mean? Does Netflix care? I'm sure they care a bit. I mean, it'd be it'd be interesting to get Richard Rushfield, who writes The Ankler. I want to know what he thinks about this, because he has been suggesting in his uh, very good, smart, sort of brutal newsletter, The Ankler, he's been suggesting that Netflix is like decreasing, like, fine, they did the awards thing, they did all that glamour stuff, but ultimately what they really want is just to own Mindshare, like, you know, own your, your viewing hours, and they're going to do it in volume rather than worry too much about prestige. So if that's true, then maybe they're just laughing at and enjoying the free publicity. I, I think it's super interesting that the French, for a culture that gave us the term avant-garde, they are much more ultimately seem to me to be uh, you know, conservative in the sense of of being willing to to in an activist way, conserve traditions, protect traditions. Americans are very much like, what's new? Like, you know, forget about trying to protect things that that are outdated. Like, if streaming is the way to go, streaming is the way to go. Cinema is clearly dead. Like, it's all about TV. And I, in France, you know, you can imagine and you can see the results of the French saying, wait a minute, cinema is something and it's different from streaming and it's diff- and you can't allow like an 800-pound gorilla to come in here and spend billions and billions of dollars drowning out everybody else and we're not going to participate in it and so even though that can seem sort of ridiculous and very very french I t- I'm, I'm glad there's somebody in the world who sort of is like actually we're not going to just go along to get along we're going to plant a stake in the ground or a flag or whatever and say like this is what we believe cinema to be and therefore we're taking these steps in order to protect it i think it will fail but it will fail beautifully like so many things <laughs> the french do So I think, you know, just doing press for Ready Player One, I believe, Steven Spielberg gave this quote, which you can read in a number of outlets, where he says, I don't believe that films that are given token qualifications in a couple of theaters for less than a week should qualify for Academy Award nominations. Once you commit to a television format, you're a TV movie. If it's a good show, you deserve an Emmy, but not an Oscar. And he says, I'll still make the post and ask an audience to please go out theaters and see the post and not make it for Netflix. And so this got like a really mixed reaction, because on the one hand, you can see it as Spielberg doing exactly what Mike said about the French uh, in general, which is like sort of planting flag and saying cinema is cinema and um, TV is TV and never never the twain shall meet. Other people, at least sort of on my Twitter feed, saw it as a bit of gatekeeping from Spielberg because like, you know, Spielberg has this blank check to do sort of whatever he wants in Hollywood and he has to, doesn't have to worry about how he's going to get his film made and stuff like that because Steven Spielberg can do whatever he wants. And this is not true for a lot of up and coming directors, a lot of female directors, directors of color, all that sort of stuff. And so they, um, you know, some people saw it as, as, you know, a bit of obnoxious gatekeeping from Steven Spielberg to dictate what is and what isn't a movie. I, I kind of am inclined to just see it as um, both what Cannes is doing and what Spielberg is saying as like this attempt to defend the movie theater against the computer or even phone screen, you know? And yeah. I think maybe there are ways in which Spielberg doesn't think about the privilege he has for sure. But I, but I think ultimately 
And and I kind of support that. I'd have to say, like, I don't really care who qualifies for an Oscar or not, but I also feel protective of the theater experience. And I'm sad that, it, you know, it feels like a losing battle against Netflix, which doesn't always care about quality. It may look better, you know, five years from now than it does today, right? And today, we're all pretty happy about Netflix, you know, giving us insane bounties of stuff to watch every night. But mm-hmm. arguably... We are with Netflix where we were with Facebook like five, seven years ago. And when you get to a point like we are now with Facebook where all publishers and traditional media companies are really gasping and dying and all of the growth is going to, you know, the duopoly of Facebook and Google and everybody's sort of saying like, wait a minute, uh, did we actually sign up for this? And Facebook is like, yes, you did. The cheerleading of a few years ago starts to seem ridiculous and the crazy people who said, actually, I'm not going along with this brave new world start to seem a little bit more brave. And and so I don't know. I mean, my inclination is usually to sort of laugh and be like, good luck with that. But on the other hand, I don't know, maybe maybe this will look good in the long run and maybe we'll be glad that somebody, you know, came out and defended the idea that like there should be theaters where you see a movie and that's different from watching something in your uh, on whatever screen you have in your uh, personal property. Yeah, and I think that also something to bear in mind in terms of these conversations is that there is an actual sort of literal physical component to it in that like theaters have employees and like it's a whole industry, you know, and so threatening that that's scary to a lot of people like who work on the on the exhibitor side of things. And but I think also with Cannes and and, and with Spielberg making these comments about Netflix, I think that what's what's happening is maybe less a rejection of the idea of a Netflix movie, but sort of trying to clarify terms, you know, and Mm -hmm. and Cannes that for the the first time this year, there's a a thing called the Cannes Series Festival. So it's a television festival that's going to happen before the film festival. They have, you know, like a formal competition lineup like the film festival does. And and so maybe they're trying to make that distinction. I think the problem is, is that 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 line is blurring for so many casual viewers. And so scrambling to kind of put things in categories is is, is tricky. And, and I think, you know, another thing about Netflix caring or not about all this, like Ted Sarandos, who runs the whole thing, he is sort of known to be a guy who who, who fancies himself sort of a, you know, a cinemaphile and and you know we've talked about on this podcast about like why would a studio like disney keep running fox searchlight when they buy fox you know do they really care about having you know awards movies and i think that yes there are you know there's more than just money involved here so i think that sarandos maybe uh i wonder what his feelings are on this because he clearly is courting not just the you know subscribers and the habitual viewers but like you know a little bit of that awardsy stuff too we saw that with mudbound right everybody wants an oscar right yeah, at some so. level yeah. i mean the other thing is they didn't mention Amazon and you know Netflix is the only one as far as I know insisting on the day and date thing yeah. they're, they're the only one saying we're not going to have a period where our theaters our, our movies are in theaters only yeah uh, and I think that is the big thing that's kind of driving everybody a, a, a little crazy and they're just saying like I get it I get where Netflix is coming from like enough already stop pretending that this model works when it clearly doesn't we can see the numbers but on the other hand you can see all the other people being like it works if we protect it. Uh, so why are you insisting on destroying it? You yeah. know, and and they're going to use whatever tools that they have. Uh, some people are. You know, the Oscars have sort of given up on that. It seems like, um, but it, but it's interesting to see Can stepping up now. 
Yeah, and I think it'll also be interesting to see if, if things like Annihilation, a movie that came out a few weeks ago, um, got a North American theatrical release, and then everywhere else, I think almost all t- other territories, Netflix did it. So mm-hmm. so it's a Netflix movie for, for people living in London or Paris or wherever, but for us, it's a theatrical movie. Maybe that's the kind of thing that might happen, where like Netflix is getting the lion's share of the distribution, but like in order to sort of qualify for these things or to stand, you know, to be a you know theatrical release feature film, like... The United States will get a brief, you know, theatrical run or something. But the ever-expanding creep of Netflix uh, into these markets, and to see now studios like Paramount essentially dumping movies yeah. to them and selling them kind of at cost, yes. like that's that that's an interesting trend that I it feels bad to me, but I don't really know why or like. Well, what, but what's what's frustrating about all of this with Netflix? Is their insistence that they don't release their numbers. So we don't know how many people watched The God Particle, which is a movie that was dumped on Netflix over Super Bowl weekend. It was called God Particle, but then it got changed to something else. Whatever it was called. Cloverfield Insurrection. I don't know. But like, uh, (laughs) it was, um, I, you know, I had to watch it Super Bowl Sunday. I wrote about it, whatever. It was not a very good movie, but like a lot of people, I think, did watch in the first couple days just to be part of the conversation. And I would love to know. If when I know not that many people saw Annihilation in the theaters when it came out, I thought it was a great movie, but not a lot of people saw it here in the US. Um, I, I did notice there was an uptick in conversation about it when it hit Netflix. I want to say it was like either a week or I think probably two weeks later that it hit Netflix in the um, international markets, uh, which was the release plan. And so when that happened, more people were talking about it. And so I know that if it had been released here only on Netflix, I would have been whining and said, oh my God, people really should have seen Annihilation in the theater. It was so beautiful. They should have done that. But given the way it was released, I'm like, well, maybe it should have been released here on Netflix so more people would have seen it and maybe they will see it eventually when it hits Netflix. But um, I, I don't know. I would like to know the numbers. I would like to know if Netflix genuinely can get a movie the size of Annihilation um, in front of more, uh, you know, eyeballs than, uh, you know, a small distribution in the in screens. I don't, I don't know the answer. And I would like to know the answer to that before I make some kind of judgment on which is better. And I think this points to the the scary possible future outcome is that they are spending like crazy, like drunken sailors now in order to put everybody else out of business and then they will stop spending. Right. I mean, that's sort of the assumption. That's like how Silicon Valley startups work. So we're all like enjoying having like a bath in free Netflix money at the moment and they are hemorrhaging cash and they don't care because the whole goal is to just kill everybody (laughs) else and then have a business model. Uh, And they're not sharing the numbers because probably not that many people are watching each individual thing on Netflix. There's too much stuff. Yeah. And so to that end, you know, I think that it's valid for people in the cultural community sort of think like, okay, what, what? stops do we have other than Bob Iger pulling off like an incredibly complex series of deals in order to hopefully build like the other competitor, which by the way, just gives you a duopoly like Facebook and Google. And we already have that, you know, in our media world and it's not that great. And it's destroying the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. and, and, and not to get into my personal theories, but I think one instructive way of thinking about this kind of technological disru- disruption is through file size, right? So the first thing that went was like newspaper articles and songs because they were really small. And then, you know, over time, you see like different things going in. We're now in full length series because they can be streamed in real time. It took a long time for that to happen. So we're in early phase of disruption 
with movies and certainly TV than we were um, than we are with some of the you know more news media stuff. Which I mean, not to get too arcane, but I think it's instructive to think like where where the media is is where the entertainment world is potentially heading. Yeah, and I think that yeah. the the entertainment world has been very shrewd about like in the news media we were incredibly naive and just went around saying information wants to be free and now we're all desperately trying to build paywalls frankly uh and in the entertainment business from the beginning it was like no we're going to keep all the agents and we're going to keep all the unions and we're going to keep this structure in place and if you want to play you're going to play with us and they've done a decent job of of keeping the structures in place but like netflix is really coming for everybody i think yeah I think that you, Mike, had had retweeted a, a thread from a former engineer, maybe at Netflix or something, who was talking about kind of more granular, like yes. that the, the, their technology, like how, like the buttons and everything, and how that all sort of is is part of a larger sort of psychological scheme to get people the uh, compression technology. Yes, they're doing yeah. all kinds of stuff better than everybody else technologically. Yeah. And and something that that this person, you know, the a conclusion they came to or a assertion they made was that Netflix has more reason to do 12 episodes of an okay show than they do to do like eight of a really great one or something. It was about like viewer habits or something like that. And so what you're saying, Mike, in terms of like Netflix taking up all the oxygen and then deciding what to do without oxygen, like that's a little bit nerve wracking because like what mandate will they actually have to be great? At this point, their metric is really getting you not to unsubscribe. Right. Everybody is subscribed yeah. in the U.S. So they're growing They're growing globally, and I think that's why they're picking up foreign rights to a lot of stuff, anything they can get. And then their whole goal is like, how do I get you to, every time you open this thing up, say, there's so much great stuff here, why would I ever unsubscribe? And, and early on, it was because they had incredibly cheap deals with all the studios because they didn't know what they were doing or, or they didn't had no idea that this was going to become such a phenomenon. And then the studios smartly renegotiated that, and that's when they kind of were no longer the place to watch every movie that was ever made and so they've had to like do other stuff to make sure that that thing is just chock full of amazing content which they've done a great job of Um, but it also could be full of like adequate content too like as long as it's as long as it amuses you for a a few hours of uh, once or twice or more a week like they're good that's all they need it'll be interesting to watch what disney does you know because i think part of the I think part of the Fox acquisition, the the idea is that they're buying a catalog in a way that like it's hard to start a film studio now because film studios that exist, ha- they, they make a lot of money on their on their back catalog of older movies, yeah. so, you know, with rights and all that. And so in acquiring Fox, Disney is really expanding their repertoire and they could create their own streaming thing that had Disney movies and Fox movies and all that. You yeah, know. they got they have Disney, Marvel, Pixar, um, Fox, ABC, um you know, a, a long list of searchlight, a long list of, of amazing stuff, FX, and you put that all into one streaming service and you price it, you know, competitively with Netflix. I think I'm sure what their hope is that they price it more than Netflix and that people are willing to pay for it and they're going to do it. And by the way, it's also Hulu and Sky. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mm-hmm. think that it probably it could well be what Hulu evolves into in the United States and what Sky evolves into in, in uh, the UK and so on. You know, that's the plan, I think. And there's a lot of hurdles between now and getting it up and running. But it would be quite a compelling. I mean, I would pay for that. And all we have now is is the Cannes Film Festival to defend the old ways. And Steven Spielberg. And Steven Spielberg. <laughs> but you don't know if Bob Iger is quietly saying to Cannes and yeah. to Spielberg, like, hey, can you help us out here? Because if, if we don't buy some time, like, We're... I need some time to get these deals done. Yeah. And if we don't buy some time, this could be a monopoly in like a year. Yeah. Speaking of Cannes, again, you know, another change that they made is 
uh, and I think this is really going to affect you, Mike, if you go to the festival this year, because I know you love taking selfies on the red carpet. Any red carpet you're <laughs> I have, on. I have taken a selfie. So have I. We all have. I mean, come on. It's the can red carpet. It's actually, um, this is embarrassing, but um, my selfie from the can red carpet is one of my like four photos on my like Tinder profile. Because <laughs> why, it looks why wouldn't it be? Yeah. Are you kidding? Uh, anyway, so uh, they have said no more because it's distracting and what and it's not it's classless or anything like that do you think that like little changes like that i mean is that is that just silly or does that mean anything broader i don't i mean it feels like they're just being french and snobby about it right it does i mean but on the other hand i guess it would be more glamorous if people weren't taking selfies the whole time yeah uh i don't know joanna what do you think i can't i can't wrap my head around this well what's interesting is when i I, this is a very different very different obviously uh film festival but one of the things that was interesting to me when i was talking to the people down in austin texas at south by southwest is they were talking about how the advent of cell phones has boosted their festival because the idea of of the fomo of south by of like oh man i want to be having tacos mm-hmm. and standing in line with ethan hawk or whatever um has really sort of changed the way uh the their festival's reputation and 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 size and popularity um but with can um it's such a different environment because it's not like it's not about like being part of it it's about like you know almost this like beautiful west andersonian thing that you cannot touch but you have to view from far away and so i understand why like bringing the cell phone on the red carpet sort of brings it down to earth a little bit and what you want is i guess the women in heels like eye roll and like you know the beautiful like beautiful suits beautiful gowns glamour um and the untouchability of it is sort of part of it. So you don't want to bring it down to earth in any way. Right. I mean, the French and the French love rules and, (laughs) and they use rules much more kind of liberally than we do. Right. Um, Isn't there like some like government agency that's responsible for maintaining the perfect French language. Yes. And they mm-hmm. decide if you get to make a change, like you can't yeah. just start saying LOL. Yeah. No, they're, they're very protective of things. And it does seem in, in a way like that can as a festival is having some sort of existential, angsty moment right now because we have the netflix thing we have the selfie thing and then another thing that like most listeners probably won't care about but like affects me a lot is that um they've completely changed the way that they're going to do screenings now and so it used to be that you would go to you know the press would see a movie at 8 30 in the big lumiere theater at the palais and then many hours later there would be the big gala red carpet you know uh premiere but because of twitter and all that you know a lot of movies will have this big gala premiere uh, after having endured hours of you know mean tweets about a movie negative reviews and so they said we want to protect these films so now uh, we're going to have the gala premiere at seven and then in the other theater the smaller theater next door then the press will see it simultaneously i love that the press still not allowed in the gala theater <laughs> no more seen no, 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 no. mike mike you've seen how film journalists dress uh, yeah I, I get it i get um, it. i understand and, and and this idea that you know that the internet has affected Red carpet culture has certainly affected distribution culture, but also just the feelings of filmmakers, you know. Uh, it's interesting to watch Can kind of try to make these moves to not really work with the internet, but sort of work, you know, sort of try to ward it off in a way. And I just wish that they, in terms of the press schedule, Berlin has a thing where they, they, they'll do a screening in the morning, and then the reviews are embargoed. That's all they do. They say you, you can't post your review until, you know, after the premiere or whatever, which seems a lot more humane than, say, making critics write up movies at 9.30 p.m. Right. when did, they want to be a party. Did they know that the uh, embargoes were an option? I, I don't, Who knows? I mean, I think it's more just like 
that, that exercising ultimate authority, you know, yeah, and not trusting people. And look, the, you know, on on Twitter, people are not really going to honor an embargo in the same way they would with like a published review. But, but yeah, so my uh, my can party going life, I think, is over. You're screwed. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna you're gonna have to party at eight thirty in the morning. Yes, and okay. then work after the yeah. gala premieres. I will say. Again, as a as a longtime digital web editor who has pushed for many things that are the old ways to be changed, um, I can see what they're getting at there. And it reminds me of watching the Stormy Daniels uh, thing on 60 Minutes the other night. And because the basketball game went long and then went into overtime... 60 Minutes, I, I just pictured some like bright young internet guy at, or gal at 60 Minutes being like, we have to release the transcript, you know, and we'll do right. it at exactly the moment that the show starts for journalists. But it ended up being like 20 minutes before the show started. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it doesn't matter. And they got amazing ratings and all the rest of it. But it just seemed like, wow, that didn't work out the way everybody <laughs> planned. Like everyone could just read the entire the whole interview 20 minutes before the the show even started. Yeah. So I, I can see the merit in at least sort of discussing these things. Now it was one thing when it was like the internet was the upstart and we were trying to like, you know, do something different, shake it up. Now it's like the internet is everything. Yeah. Your legacy thing is the thing you're trying to protect from being basically just like, you know, vaporized. And so, yeah, I, hopefully they will f- figure out next year that embargoes uh, are an option. Yeah, I, I don't know if this relates directly, but it just kind of reminded me of. Um, so I had you know uh, this book come out last month, and uh, I was on Amazon pre release just looking at like early reviews of it from people who'd gotten copies. And I noticed that they had the look inside thing, you know, where you can kind of read a, a selection from the book. And I was scrolling through and I was like, this, the whole book is they've scanned the entire book in here. <laughs> and so I, 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 I immediately called my the, the publicist at, at Penguin and I was like, uh, Casey, the, the whole book is on Amazon. Like, what are we getting? She's like, I get this phone call from every first time author. It looks like it is. But like in actuality, they skip pages. It, just, yeah. it looks like the whole thing. And I was like, but why would they do this? I mean, it has the last page. People are going to find out the ending. And she's like, well, Richard, the thing is that it's like at a bookstore like you can pick up a book at a bookstore and and theoretically read the whole thing without buying it and i was like oh that does make sense like maybe the internet is not like you know i don't know it was just a funny sort of alarmist yeah. moment about about all these it's changes a brave new era it is here we are uh, but speaking of netflix uh and and you know we're, we're embarking upon emmy season believe it or not and mike you had a kind of er, er, a favorite that, that just premiered on, on netflix that, that could be emmy-ish right yes and to atone for saying that netflix was about to destroy the world which it may or may not be interested in doing um they have an incredibly great series uh called wild wild country that i feel like is in the kind of jinx uh oj made in america category of like incredible you can't believe what you're watching literally my wife and i were watching it and two-thirds of the way through the first episode i'm like this is this can't be real like i'm start googling it because i'm like this is some kind of hoax documentary i'm gonna be really mad when i find out this is a fake documentary (laughs) uh it is real a friend of mine it's set in oregon just to give you a quick background on it it starts in this little tiny town in oregon of like 50 people very conservative it's all like retirees who just want a quiet life and uh this indian guru uh, named Bhagwan buys a 65 acre ranch of mostly mountainous terrain um, right outside of their town. 
and then like bulldozes the mountains, builds a, a huge compound and brings thousands and thousands of his followers in who all wear pink, red and orange getups. This is 1981. This all starts. Uh, and like suddenly in the middle of rural conservative Oregon, there is this wild like free love cult um, and their and their leader, the Bhagwan, uh, and this incredibly uh, charismatic, you know, kind of scary um, woman who is his number two named Sheila. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Sheila. And you're just watching this thing as it it just takes one crazy turn after another. There's attempted murders, there's a poisoning plot, there's, you know, embezzlement of money money or whatever. Uh there's there's money sh- shifting around. Um at one point the people in the cult all decide to um arm themselves with guns because they're sick of being, you know, harassed by the outsiders. They, Sheila says, "I don't believe in turning the other cheek. I hit both cheeks." Uh, they they bring in. I don't want to tell you too much. They do all kinds of insane things. This story, and and they have access to everybody now, but they also have footage of everything at the time. It's one of those places where clearly there were a few incredibly motivated people with camcorders or whatever those were in 1981 to 1984, um, who who felt that they needed to document this whole thing. Super interesting. Very like. Very lots of moral thorny questions and things to sort of ponder um, about, like how much of the insanity of what happened here is a result of you know this this religious group, and how much of it was was a reaction to the community outside of it, just you know absolutely refusing to go along with it. Uh, anyway, six part series. It's that's like perfect length. I feel like for one of these things, uh, and I would be shocked if it's not in the Emmy conversation. It seems to be getting lots of chatter. It's like people once people find out about it, they kind of go all in and get really excited about it. Um, so I know we're commissioning a piece with the with the um, the guys who made it, who are brothers. Um, but this thing is worth your time, in my humble opinion. And once you're done with the David Chang show, right? Yeah, <laughs> and Queer Eye, you can flip over to this or go back and forth. Joanna, are you big on the, the? I guess it's not really true crime, but you know, it's sort of of it's it's similar to that. D- kind of is. Did Did you go in for that stuff, Joanna? I I will confess, even though um, Mike is my boss and I'm supposed to watch all the TV ever, that I skipped the <laughs> the Jinx and Making a Murderer. It's not usually my thing, but this seems a little different. Like a documentary on a cult seems a little different to me than those uh, types of thing, which are trying to like break news this is sort of like what happened right and um yeah the, the whole like break news you know in the post serial world gets a little uncomfortable for me but but an examination of something creepy and insane that happened i'm i'm pretty excited for and you know if it is mike's stamp of approval this is me trying to earn credit back after admitting i didn't watch the jinx if it is mike's stamp of <laughs> approval then i'm definitely gonna watch it so you know i'm fine with that joanna you there's a lot of stuff you watch that i would not be interested in watching it's, it's okay to <laughs> To have uh, your own taste and for us to have expertises. But I do think for, yeah, for those people who watched the Jinx, inhaled it like I did and, and inhaled OJ Made in America, like this is, I think, on the order of that stuff. I'm going to come out and say it. 
And it's going to be interesting to see where those things fit into the Emmy conversation because, you know, they're not scripted series. And so, you know, what do they qualify for? But increasingly, these things are so, you know, they're the zeitgeist, you know, because yeah. there's so many scripted shows out there that it's really hard for any large enough group of people to be having the same conversation about that. But when you have this more sort of distilled genre uh, of, of really addictive true crime stuff, like that's something that like you know golden globes and emmys should be paying attention to more yeah. than they maybe do there's a real leftovers vibe to this Ooh. in fact i wonder if the people who made the leftovers were aware i mean the leftovers the the guilty remnant were not a free sex cult <laughs> right but when these folks show up in the town dressed in their like you know monochrome outfits it's leftovers-esque um and uh and and i think that one of the things that i love about a show like this is it's stranger than fiction like if you if you pitched it, you know, this has become a cliche, but like only the truth can be weirder than the craziest fiction. It's one of those things you would just be thrown out of the room for say, like, and then this happened. Like, no, right. that would never happen. Well, it did happen. It's a totally bananas uh, story. Well, I'm sold. Wild, wild country. I'm, I'm going to watch wild it. Wild country. Yeah. And speaking of uh, award stuff, as we always do, uh, we also were in Tony's season. And so I thought before we left, I just I went and sat and watched Angels in America for eight hours uh, on Sunday, uh, which was thrilling. As I said, I was a couple of seats away from Frances McDormand, who told me that she'd never seen any of it. Not, not the movie, not what? the miniseries, not the play. Really? Nothing. Uh, so she sat wrapped and, and enjoyed that. And I oh, got good. to chat with her about that. Anyway, was our buddy Mark Harris there? Mark Harris was there. I met. Was he? I, I met Good. his husband, you met uh, his Tony, husband. Tony. Uh, who was lovely and told me a funny little anecdote about about writing. Tell me, wait, can you go back in time a little bit and just for a second yeah. and tell me how your conversation with Fran McDormand started? So during the the thing, there, are, you know, there there are two intermissions per play. Mm-hmm. So it's Met Lenin approaches and Perestroika, and so during the one of the first intermissions, I heard her saying to her companion, like I've never seen this. And then I think by the third inter- intermission, I, I was I was feeling bold enough uh, to actually my my friend and I to strike up a conversation with her, and so we we're like we heard we heard you hadn't seen it. And she was like, oh no no never, and uh, yeah you know and and at a certain point we were like I think we you know sorry to bother you, and she said no I mean we're in this together we're it's like we're at summer camp together because you know we'd been sitting with Francis McDormand for at that point six and a half hours, so <laughs> you know why not why not chat uh, with her and Diane Sawyer was across the aisle and Billy Eichner and Glenn Close it was quite a it, it was quite a lineup. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o was there and all of them did the eight hours which I was very like impressed by they didn't just show up for the party or anything but anyway it got me thinking about that wonderful min- HBO miniseries that they did in 2004 yes. which won a lot of Emmys mm-hmm. um, uh, including I believe for Meryl Streep so I was thinking about like okay what piece of theater should next get the kind of uh, awards bait sort of treatment whether it's mm. in a miniseries or whether in a film uh, and I think I'd run this idea by you Joanna uh, did you come up with anything do you have anything you'd love to see um, you know, sort of be Emmy or Oscar eligible. I think you should go first, Richard. <laughs> that's <laughs> darn it. Uh, well, I I haven't seen Hamilton, but that's going to come out, right? That'll that'll be big. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, something I would love because it's a wonderful role for an actress, and I think HBO would be perfect for this. Is the play How I Learned to Drive, which is about you know sexual abuse and very and feminism and very topical to to the time. It's a Pulitzer winning play. I would love to see that be as like an HBO movie. I think that's a great play and a cool opportunity for an actress who like, you know, maybe in her thirties ish. So that would be my choice, but like also musicals would be fun. And um, I'd like them to redo into the woods and do it right this time. Oh, that'd be great. Could they ever do into the woods as one of those like 
live musicals like is there a premium mediocre space for like i don't know you know what i mean they always do these like cornball musicals although the jesus christ superstar thing is interesting because that's in a way a great musical i mean yeah it looks really potentially great but maybe not. Well, because they're doing it with a live audience, which is exactly yes. what you need because you watch these other ones and it's so creepy. They'll finish a song and it's just dead silence. Yeah, and yeah, And you're like, where's yeah. the applause? Like, where's know, did the... you guys forget that laugh tracks exist? I mean, are, 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 like, applause tracks? Yeah, come on. Like, uh, and you know, I, but uh, what I hope though for any of those live musical broadcasts is that they will have Matthew Broderick creepily kind of like in the background <laughs> narrating like they did for Christmas Story, which was such a strange thing. Oh, he would be a good narrator for Into the Woods. I saw the original Into the Woods on Broadway. I'm just going <gasps> to not wow. to age myself. With Bernadette uh, Peters? Uh, yep, yep, yep. And then I acted in it in college. You were Jack? So were you Jack? I was not Jack. You were the baker? I was the wolf. Were you the oh, wolf? Wow. and the okay. prince. I was oh. the wolf and the you prince. Sang guys. Yep. Oh, oh my wow. god. Okay. Charming but not sincere. Um I w- when you asked about live musicals, um I was like, "Well, I don't know that I need a live into the woods because I grew up uh with I don't know, I must have been a PBS Great Performances uh taping of that Bernadette Peters performance yeah. and I've seen it mm-hmm. 1 million times. So many times. You know, I I grew up in San Francisco Bay Area, so it's not like I grew up in a cultural wasteland, but it, it that my experience with that taped production of that show has always made me believe that every single Broadway show should be taped and distributed maybe years later so you don't like impact ticket sales. It's not the same as a live theatrical performance, but I think, you know, there's something to be said about letting the rest of the country see, like, the the fact that I've seen that Bernadette Peters performance and the rest of the whole cast, like, is just uh, really, really important to me. So, democratize theater is what I have to say. There you go. I, I came up with a good answer, Richard. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, lay it on me. Rich and I both just watched this Netflix BBC co production called Collateral with Carrie Mulligan from playwright David Hare, who's a, a playwright I really, really admire. I am not sure that his kind of storytelling, um, which is very spare and very intense, worked all the way through that production, which was, I want to say, four episodes. Is that right? Richard, mm-hmm. um, I think it sort of lost the thread a little bit at the end, but I thought I found it really compelling. And Carrie Mulligan was great; she's worked with David Hare on the stage as well. And so, any David Hare play, I would like to see more uh, filmed attempts of. Yeah, that's a good call. Skylight is a really good one. I, I got one riffing off of your joke um, in the Heights. Oh yeah, yeah, that would be great. They're doing a Kennedy Center production of in the heights and so like vanessa hudgens is going to be in a couple other people well they should put that on tv that's my contribution (laughs) to american they probably will all right well i think that does it for this week's episode you can follow us at little gold men on twitter we are all individually on twitter i'm at rylaws mike mike underscore hogan joanna at i didn't watch the jinx (laughs) (laughs) perfect uh, yeah, and you know we're obviously all you know writing on bf.com, uh, and oh, I should mention a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we have two new critics joining the VF family. Yep. Sonia Soraya is going to be our TV critic, and Kay Austin Collins is going to be uh, joining me as a film critic. And I'm sure that we'll hear their voices on this podcast at some point. That's uh, right. I would and think Joy so. Press is joining us oh, in yes. the LA office as a TV correspondent. She has a great book called Stealing the Show about um, female showrunners going back to Murphy Brown and forward to Broad City and beyond. So 
I'm really excited about that too. This is this is an exciting day. We, we yeah. made the announcement this morning, and lots of uh, happiness around that. Yeah, I think that the VF voice is going to be that much richer with with these new people. And Richard say. is now our chief critic. That's right. So I'm going to start. I should start introducing myself or being introduced by Katie uh, when she's back next week uh, as chief. Chief. Yeah. yeah. Chief. Thanks, Chief, for for hosting. <laughs> yeah, I think this means you get to wear a jaunty hat at all times. I believe that's what that means. Oh, perfect, great, and and chomp on cigars or something. <laughs> we'll uh, talk to you guys next week. And uh, this episode was produced and edited by Daniel Roth. And this week's award goes to Richard Lawson for the best description of Mike's morning workout routine. A brief theatrical run or something. <laughs>